Welcome to Philosophy Voiced, the podcast of the Center for Ethics at the University of Pardubice. I am Silvia Capriolio Panizza, a Maris Kwodowska Curie Fellow, and today I am joined by Sophie Grace Chapel, Professor of Philosophy at the Open University. Sophie Grace, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Professor Chapel works in ethics, in the philosophy of literature, the philosophy of sex and gender, ancient and medieval philosophy, epistemology, and the philosophy of religion. She's the author of over 100 articles and numerous books, including Aristotle and Augustine, Augustine on Freedom, The Inescapable Self, Ethics and Experience, Knowing What to Do, and as of March 2022, Epiphanies and Ethics of Experience, published by OUP, which is going to be one of the main topics of conversation today. Sophie Grace is also, I understand, a keen mountain climber and a poet. Professor Chappell was our guest here in Pardubice and as a speaker at the EU-funded workshop Here I Stand, I Can Do No Other, or Can I, on the Reality of Moral Impossibility on 9th and 10th of September, which is the occasion for this interview. Sophie Grace, one of the distinguishing features of your philosophy is the aim to redefine the meaning and scope of the ethical in the context of an intellectual and philosophical climate, which seems to restrict and confine the ethical perhaps too much. Can you tell us a bit about how you see ethics? Well, I see ethics as concerned with Socrates' question, how should life be lived? And um, that's a question that Socrates focuses on in the Republic, in the Crito, pretty much everywhere where Socrates gets um, a billing in Plato's works. That's Socrates' question. How should life be lived? And um, that question in the Greek is tinitropo bioton toanthropo. Um, in what way is literally it to be lived for humanity, for, for men? Um, anthropos is ambiguous, gender ambiguous between those two senses. So um, bioton here is um, what Greek grammarians call a gerund. Um, it's it's a, um, a to-be-done word, and it's not necessarily a, a moral word in a special sense of moral at all. It just means in general, what kind of reasons do we have to act and to live and to feel and to think in certain ways? So um, I think modern moral philosophers who concentrate on reasons um, are doing something absolutely right. What I think has gone wrong in a lot of discussions is the idea that there's a special category of moral reasons. We most certainly do have reasons that arise from um, the existence of others, from value in the world, from the importance of our own lives to ourselves and to others. We have all those sorts of reasons for sure. Um, categorizing them as specially moral reasons is, I think, not just not helpful. It's it's the opposite of illuminating. It makes things look difficult and obscure, where actually, in practice, in our ordinary lives, we don't think in quite that clear-cut way. Um, and the lack of clear distinction here actually helps. It helps us to understand how things blend into each other. Thank you. And as part of your aim of renewing and reconfiguring ethics is the question of style, which is a very interesting and underrated one. And reading your book, one is struck by several features. One is, I would say, the directness of the tone and no-nonsense kind of quality. Uh, and another is, at least that's my impression, that you're having fun writing this. 
So my question is, how do you think about the way you write moral philosophy? And is there a style or a reproach that you enjoy reading or one that you recommend? Um, I, I think there are lots of styles which which can be fruitful. And one thing I'm always going on about is the, noid, the need to avoid um, shepherding ourselves, corralling ourselves into thinking that there's just one way of doing things. Um, I wouldn't want for a moment to say that there is a correct philosophical style. But there are people out there who do want to say that. In particular, we're forced into a kind of anonymous, um, robotic, uh, highly defensive, back-covering, careful, cautious style um, by the constraints of writing for journals. And I think that whilst there's much that can be said in the particular way that journals encourage us to write, there's also much that can't be said that way. And sometimes it's better to to change tack, to write in a different tone, to try something else. So I actually put some of my poems into the book as epigraphs, which I, I don't know when that last happened in a book by Oxford University Press that was published by their philosophy list rather than their um, poetry list. Um, I'm actually surprised. I, I think I've seen three or four reviews of the book so far, and I'm actually surprised that no one has called me incredibly pretentious for doing this. But I don't myself regard it as pretentiousness um, of course, I don't, or I wouldn't have done it. Um, I think it is, it's a studied attempt on my part. What it is, it's a studied attempt on my part to open the doors to other ways of doing philosophy. And you, you mentioned humour. I think humour, I say this in chapter four, is a kind of dimension to human life that is always there. There's always the potential for things to be funny. We have the sensibility of being able to laugh at things. And I think um, there's a deep connection between human and the between the human and humour, there is actually an etymological connection between those words. That's also with humus, as in as in soil. Um, and humans are people of the earth. Humour is sometimes earthy. It's very important, I think, to keep our ability to laugh at things um, in play, even when we're doing philosophy, even when things get all serious. Often, the best thing to do is to. Uh, break the bubble of pomposity with with a little dart of humour. Absolutely. I, I personally appreciated the presence of the poems. I was curious about them when <laughs> I heard that you were writing poems. And I thought that gives a more intimate and personal uh, insight into the person who's writing the book, apart from the prose. Perhaps that's one reason why people, why philosophers don't like doing it. There mm. is this tradition, particularly in English philosophy, of being extremely buttoned up and of not allowing any of our uh, private feelings to seep onto the page. Um, so, for example, um, I've never managed to get out of Galen Strawson um, any copies of Peter's, Peter Strawson's poems. Galen is Peter's son. If anybody knows where Peter Strawson's poems are to be found, I imagine it's Galen's, Galen's knowledge. I'd love to see Peter Strawson's poems, but they would, I think, show a very different side of him from the philosophical side. Um, I'm, I'm not comparing myself with Strawson, but I think it's true to say that in my work, um, the philosophical side and the poetic side are closer together, for good or for ill. Yeah, absolutely. Let's keep talking about epiphanies. How did the idea for the book come to you? Um, well, um, it sounds a little, it sounds like one of those tasks and reflexive jokes that philosophers are always making to say that it was an epiphany. Um, but it kind of was, but it was, it was a slow burning epiphany. So I was aware in my own life that for me, there are these experiences where the shape of the, the world around me, the world of value that I'm aware of, where it changes, where there's a breakthrough, where you see something new. 
Um, and there were certain particular experiences in my own life where something like that had happened. And one of them that I keep going back to was at school. At school in, in a wet games period, once long ago, in the early 80s, presumably, we saw this cartoon, which I've never been able to track down on YouTube, unfortunately, where a man moves around the world in a kind of blur, and all he's concerned with is his own concerns, and he can barely see other people. There are other people out there, but he, he just views them as, you know, like rocks or tables in his way. They're just obstacles to be negotiated. And then one day, suddenly his vision clears, and he actually sees that around him there are other people. And he's absolutely broken by this realization. It changes everything for him. So I must have been perhaps 13 when I saw that. And seeing it kind of broke me too. It was kind of a revelation because I was aware, I wasn't aware that I, I wasn't suddenly aware of the existence of other people, of course. Of course, I realized that other people were real before that. But I noticed in my own, my own experience that there is this fluctuation between states of mind where you're incredibly, one is incredibly um, egotistical and driven by one's own concerns and just sees others as obstacles. And other times where um, one manages to be more empathetic, to see other people as the people they are. So that was one source, that kind of experience in my own life. It's not unconnected with my own religious commitments and experience, though that's one thing perhaps that I have been a bit coy about in the book. A third thing that happened was I was I was thinking about what I call the the what next question in in the book in Epiphanies. Uh, so in chapter two, I I say all the things I think I, I moan about systematic moral theory. I go on about that for a bit and say how awful systematic moral theory is. And then of course the obvious question is, well, if not that, then what? What do you do instead? And I was thinking about that question for a long time. I was already thinking about that question in two thousand and three when I still believed more or less in the project systematic moral theory. I was still thinking about it in 2008, 2009, when I began to raise more seriously for myself the question, look, I don't think I can really go on doing systematic moral theory. I want to do something else. I kind of need to do something else, but what? And so I thought, well, one thing you could do is garden around and see what kind of phenomena you can come up with where we're talking more directly about ethical experience rather than moral theory, and where in particular we're unearthing phenomena, we're tracking down and exploring phenomena that are really important in ordinary life and just don't seem to get covered in moral theory. And I fixed on the phenomenon of glory, as I call it. And I wrote an article about it, because I was thinking particularly of cases of glory in sport. So someone scores a brilliant goal in front of a huge, adoring audience, and this stadium goes wild, and it's a fantastic moment. Why doesn't moral theory have something to say about this experience, I thought? And what might we say about it? What, what light does it shed on ethics and on how we live and how we think and what matters to us, that there is this phenomenon of glory? And Epiphanes is kind of, uh, you know, glory is the single, Epiphanes is the, the, the studio album treatment of the same theme. Epiphanes glue, grew essentially from that glory article. Um, and and the, the glory article turned into a chapter. It's there in knowing what to do. Um, and so, yeah, that's where it came from. And the way you talk about it and write about epiphanies, it makes it sound like epiphanies are extremely desirable and something that we may wish to repeat, especially if we think about the existence of other people. Uh, that's a good realization. But you also caution us against taking experience of epiphanies too seriously or in a way that's too fixed. In other words, you say that there are also dangers associated with epiphanies. Can you tell us more about that? 
Well, I think it's. I think there are two dangers in particular. I'm sure there are lots of dangers, but here are two. First of all, I think there's a danger in being an epiphany chaser, a rainbow chaser. Um, I think we should be open to epiphanies, and I think we should welcome them when we when they come. But I think um, there's a danger in just seeking experience rather than what it's experience of. And two points in the book where this theme comes up are with C.S. Lewis. He talks about joy in his famous biographical book, Surprised by Joy. Um, and he is talking about something like the experiences that I call epiphanies. And this this is kind of shaggy dog story feel to Surprised by Joy. And there's a kind of um, surprising turn in the story when towards the end of the book, Lewis says, I spent all my youth seeking experiences of joy. I don't seek those experiences anymore. I regard them as pointers to something else, to the divine. What I seek is the divine. So I'm following, you know, the, the experiences of joy are signposts. They point us towards the divine. And um, I guess my attitude to epiphany is something like Lewis's here. I think epiphany is tremendously important as pointing us towards the reality of value. But I think it's a mistake which, for example, Walter Pater makes. In the famous passage at the end of his book, The Renaissance, he talks about burning like with a hard gem-like flame in moments of experience. And for Pater, he's a kind of Protagorean. He thinks that all there is to our lives is a succession of punctual moments. And in those moments, we've got to make as many of them as possible epiphanic. Not his term, but mine. But that's certainly what he means. And I think Pater's just completely wrong. I think that kind of concentration on the experience at the expense of what it's an experience of, is actually quite dangerous and deeply misleading. So we shouldn't be epiphany chasers, and we shouldn't be epiphany idolizers either. There's a, a wonderful metaphor in the book of Exodus, the manna that God sheds on the Israelites when they're in the wilderness. They have to eat it on the day it falls. After that, it goes off and begins to stink. And I think that's a metaphor which brings out a deep truth about all kinds of revelations and seeings and ecstasies and epiphanies, we, we can't cling on to them. We have to let go of them. We have to be prepared to accept that they they do something for us at a certain point. But the whole point of epiphanies is to keep us moving, not to make us stationary and fixed on them. And being fixed on them, being fixated on them, I think is a kind of idolatry. Thank you. You have just mentioned religion a couple of times, and you said that you've been coy about it. So I guess I'd like you to be a bit less coy uh, in this interview, because uh, you say you're right as a Christian, but you have in mind both a religious and a non-religious audience. So how do you see epiphanies manifesting in both religious and non-religious consciousness? And do you think that there are marked distinctions between the two kinds of experiences? Between epiphanies and religious experiences? Well, between epiphanies that appear to a non-religious consciousness with a non-religious feature and the religious one. Yeah, right. Um, well, this is really difficult. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm coy about this is because it's so hard to talk about. And I have a little go at um, lining up a row of epiphanies, most of which are religious experiences at the beginning of the last chapter of the book. And so the other really difficult thing we're coming up against here is the problem of relativism which I talk about in the last chapter, different people have different epiphanies, which they say point them in completely different directions. So the Prophet Muhammad apparently had something like an epiphany in his cave where he received the Quran from um, the angel Jibril, 
um, or whoever. Moses had an epiphany or something like one on Mount Sinai. Jesus had an epiphany or was an epiphany to his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration and so on. Um, religion is full of experiences like these, but religion is also full of um, two other thoughts, one about not chasing the epiphanies for their own sake and the other about not idolizing the epiphanies, both of which I've, I've just been talking about. So, I mean, another thing from religion that I might quote here is Jesus' rather enigmatic saying when he's risen. He says to his disciples, do not hold on to me, for I am going to my Father. And I think everyone who goes to church on the Sunday after Easter, Low Sunday, is puzzled by that remark. I'm still puzzled by it. But I think perhaps part of what it means is, well, you've seen me risen, but don't hold on to me. So your question was, are there differences between religious um, people's epiphanies and non-religious people's epiphanies? And the answer is, of course, for sure there are. And there are differences too between different religions' epiphanies. And we all, I mean, one of the very difficult problems here is um, trying to disentangle the conceptual framing of an epiphany from the epiphany itself. If it even makes sense to try and do that, perhaps an epiphany is a, you know, a high point in a narrative, the, the payoff in a story, the punchline of a joke, something like that. And in those cases, there's no epiphany aside from the conceptual clothing, because the epiphany is all about the concepts that are involved. In other cases, it can seem like you've got what Rudolf Otto calls the sense of the numinous, which is something that you can take from one experience aside from its conceptual framing and find in other cases. So one of the things I wanted to do in the book was not get categorized as a religious philosopher, as a philosopher of religion. I very much didn't want that to happen because I didn't want to lose a lot of my audience. And I know that analytical philosophers in particular, if they think, oh, she's talking about philosophy, she's talking about religion, um, religion isn't philosophy, so I'm not interested, so I'll go away and do something else. I very much wanted to make that response difficult for people to offer. I'm sure people will offer it anyway, but I tried my best to exclude it. It's another reason why I'm coy about religion. It's a tactical reason. I want to keep people in the audience bluntly. I want to keep them listening. And I want to say that there's a great deal that believers and unbelievers have in common in their apophanic experiences, more than they perhaps suspect. So this is one reason why I quote Wordsworth and Hopkins quite a lot in the book, two of my favorite poets, that's part of it. And also Wordsworth and Hopkins are both very good, despite um, their very different religious positions. I mean, Wordsworth is um, a kind of um, mystical pantheist. Hopkins is a hardline traditionalist Catholic, but they're both very good at seeing the beautiful, the valuable, the numinous in simple everyday things. And that perhaps is a common point between the most hardline atheist and the most devout Christian or other believer. And it's in those kind of experiences. I wanted to say, look, don't you think epiphanies, if you're an unbeliever, give you some idea of what religious people are on about? And I wanted to say, look, if you're a believer, don't you think that epiphanies are the kind of thing that you might share in common with people who aren't believers? Just trying to keep things open, trying to keep doors open and avoid building walls rather than bridges. 
Yeah, that definitely resonated with me as, a, I would say, a non-religious reader. And one of the things that uh, holds the religious and non-religious epiphanies together, as you point out in the book, is the encounter with value, which is one of the markers of the epiphanies, as you describe it. Uh, but there I want to ask you, you acknowledge yourself that there are epiphanies that do not, at first blush, seem to be encounters with values. And I don't just mean epiphanies in situations that are less than good or less than desirable, but also apparently neutral ones, such as the Buddhist awakening of the reality of things, which can be occasioned by truly seeing the existence of a rock without any further properties and without thinking of the rock as good or bad, but just there and awe-inspiring because it's there. So would such cases be counterexample to the idea of epiphanies as encounters with value, or is there a value here that goes beyond the more obvious meaning of value? Yes. I mean, Buddhism is another thing that, on the whole, I tend to avoid talking about because I, I find Buddhism remarkably ambiguous. I, I think it's studiedly ambiguous, actually. I think it means to be ambiguous. So um, one thing that Buddhists sometimes say is that coming to understand the rea reality of things is a glorious re revelation which sets you free. Um, they also say that coming to understand the reality of things is coming to understand emptiness and the nothingness of things. And so the, going the first way, we seem to have the idea that Buddhists think everything is charged with value. Going the second way, it seems to be all about the draining away of value, the emptying of value. And we see this too in, in Buddhist practical philosophy, this, this duality between something being there and nothing being there. So the idea of a lot of Buddhist practical philosophy, as far as I understand it, which is probably not very far, the idea is that it's better to abstain from action. It's better not to do things. It's better to hold back. And it's better to be without desire. It's better not to want anything. Um, but that can also seem like a very different kind of injunction. The injunction to be still, the, you know, the injunction about not acting can be seen as the injunction not to be officious and interfering and not to be trapped in your own actions, not to be in what I sometimes call the, ham the hamster wheel of activity, but to have stillness and serenity in yourself. And the, the thing about desire often seems, in a lot of expositions of it, to be really about bodily desire. So it's not being said that you shouldn't desire things. It's being said that you shouldn't have what Plato calls epithumia. You shouldn't be controlled by the desires of the body. But of course, you should want to understand the ultimate and the reality of things. And of course, you should seek for the truth. And of course, you should, you should love others. I mean, this is another thing that's very central to Buddhism, the idea of love and compassion. Where that love and compassion is supposed to, um, is supposed to sit, if it's got to be held together with the thought that other people are just as illusory as I am, we're all illusions, we don't really exist, we're not really there, then, then what is it we're having compassion on? And there's a lot about Buddhism that I find deeply puzzling, um, but there's also a lot about it I find deeply sympathetic. And the, the, the injunction to be still, to be compassionate, and to set yourself free from useless and pointless striving, um, I'm right on board with all of that. But I, I mean, as a Christian, I, I fundamentally think that desire is a good thing. 
essentially, I don't think desire is a bad thing. I think desire is reaching out for value. And that's a good thing, the best thing we can do. We just need to be rid of the wrong sorts of desires. And at this point, I simply don't know whether Buddhists agree with me or not. Yeah, of course. I'm sure that would be a very <laughs> long conversation to have. Yeah, yeah. But let, let's move from rocks to uh, non-human animals and the natural world, which is a prominent part of your book, even though it doesn't uh, manifest immediately. Um, and one thing that I really enjoyed, because it's close to my heart, is the presence of non-human animals that the attention that you give not just to their lives in general, but to their suffering for which as humans we're responsible and to the subjective experience of non-human animals, such as your reference to Mark Rowland's wolves and dogs, uh, for mm. example. So my question is, is there a special connection between epiphanies and other animals? Is there something to do with joy, immediacy, embodiment or something else? Or is it just one kind of epiphany among others? Yeah, I, I don't think that animals are the key to the notion of epiphanies, because I, I don't think there is a, a single thing that is the key to the notion. Epiphanies crop up in all sorts of ways. But certainly, I think one of the, the big thoughts that we need to have, especially now, especially today, in our current biodiversity crisis, one of the big thoughts we need to have as the human species is that we are not the only species. It, it looks like we're trying to make ourselves the only species at times by destroying all the others, but we're not. We share this earth with other things that have, you might say, as much right to be here as we do. And if we have a task in the world, I think the task is something like gardening. It's something like beautifying, uh, stimulating diversity and liveliness and flourishing all around us. And tragically, we do all too much of the time exactly the opposite. So um, it, it breaks my heart when I think, for example, that if you count individual animals, then something like 70% of all the living individual animals um, at the level of charismatic megafauna, presumably, 70% of them have been killed directly or indirectly by human action in the last uh, 60 years. So, so roughly in my lifetime, we've massacred over half of the creatures that we share the planet with. Now, I find that absolutely heartbreaking. I really do. And I don't think that that is the right relationship for us to be in with other species. So we're all aware, of course, of um, the redness in tooth and claw of nature and of how brutal it can be. We're all aware of the theory of evolution. But nonetheless, um, we can look around us and we can see other animals as fit objects of our compassion and sympathy and care. And I don't think it's a mistake to think that way. I don't think it's a grand sentimentality. I think it's right to see animals in that light. And so, for example, I have lots of sparrows in my garden. I also occasionally have a sparrow hawk in my garden. Uh, now, it would be quite out of place for me to stop the sparrow hawk. Um, you know, it goes around the bushes with his mad yellow eyes, trying to flush out the sparrows and trying to kill and eat them. It would be wrong for me to stop the sparrow hawk from doing that. And yet, I, I really like the sparrows in my garden. I empathize with them. I look at the sparrows and they make me laugh. Um, I enjoy them being there. But I enjoy the sparrowhawk being there too. So all the time in our interactions with nature, we have this ability for sympathy and fellow creaturely feeling. And I think that's a good thing about us, not a bad thing. I think we need to be very careful how we express that feeling. But I think it's far better to have that feeling than simply not to care about other species. 
Absolutely. And it strikes me that that's one of the cases in which, as you mentioned, we know that animals are value. We encounter them as such. And then we manage yeah. to think our way out of that experience. So do you think that epiphanies can play an important and special role in the fight against climate change? I think they already do. Um, I think that one of the most powerful uh, tools that those of us who are on the side of, on, on the life side of the argument, rather than the death side of the argument, and I do want to put it as, as starkly as that, it is about, um, it's, it's money or the human species, um, one or the other will survive, we've got to decide which. It is a choice between life and death. One of the most powerful tools we have on the side of um, saying yes to life is um, nature documentaries. And I love, when I'm not doing anything else, spending my evening watching David Attenborough nature documentaries, which I think are a glorious example of just this kind of thing. It's a whole row of epiphanic encounters with different kinds of animals and species. And so I think our responses to nature are very often mediated by the kind of epiphanies that I'm talking about. And of course, Attenborough in his documentaries very deliberately and very studiedly uses, you know, footage of orcas doing astonishing things, working in teams to create a backwash that knocks a seal off an ice flow so the orcas can eat it. I mean, there's, you know, exactly the combination of attitudes I'm talking about. We've got on the one hand our ability to empathize with both sides of this encounter and to see how hungry the orcas are, but also how terrified the seal is. Um, it's also an epiphanic moment. It's a majestic piece of teamwork. It's, it's brilliantly done. It's beautifully shot by Attenborough. And he uses insights like that to make us think, no, hold on, we can't go on like this. We do want a world where there are other species. It's time we did something. It's time we changed something in the way we live to try and make sure that that happens. So yes, I think epiphanies, I think epiphanies are absolutely there in the shaping of our attitudes already. So maybe one of the tasks on the environmental movement would be to stimulate more epiphanies in more people. Yes, absolutely, to spread them around. And that's what Attenborough yeah. is doing. And I'm very much in favour of that, being an environmentalist myself. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. So if we keep thinking as human animals, uh, chapter four of your book, What is it like to be a human being? takes the question of embodiment as fundamental part of what it's like to be us. How do you see the role of the body of the philosopher in the practice of philosophizing? I think that um, a lot of the time, uh, I think in this perhaps, Plato and Buddhism are bad teachers insofar, and I, I want to underline that qualification, insofar as both tend to make us think badly of the body and both tend to make us think of the body as a distraction. I think that we uh, need to be in tune with our bodies, which sounds like a, an extremely banal thing to say, but I think it's, perhaps it is a banal thing to say, but I think it's also a deep truth. Um, it's an important part of what we are as human beings. It, it is what we are as human beings, that we're animals, that we get sleepy, that we have a sex drive, that we feel hunger, that we're capable of um, humour, that we, a lot of us have in our minds playing pretty well all the time, a music track, a background to every, a background of music to everything we do. Um, I talk, talk to people because I'm, I'm interested in this phenomenon. Um, the mind plays music to me a lot of the time um, whilst I'm doing almost anything. 
Um, and some people report that they have this going on in their minds too, and others don't. That strikes me as a very interesting phenomenon about us, our capacity for music. And of course, I'm mentioning it when you ask about the body, because I want to bring out how the layers of our minds, if we insist on speaking about layers, gradate seamlessly down from what we think of as the purely rational to what we think of as the purely bodily. I mean, presumably we have music playing in our minds because of some kind of side effect of the architecture of our brains. Um, and the architecture of our brains is a physical architecture and has to do with us being the kind of carbon-based life forms that we are. So it all connects up. Um, the body and the mind is a seamless garment, um, and you can't extract one from the other, as even Descartes um, openly affirms. You, you cannot just separate the mind out of the body, like the helmsman out of the ship. The relation between them is much more intimate than that. And I do still wonder, perhaps, if the kinds of ways we do philosophy don't reflect a kind of refusal of the body, a kind of turning our backs on the body. Yeah, which can have very negative effects, both philosophically yeah. and politically. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, I know that in my philosophizing, the fact that I am a woman with this kind of body does play a role. And in connection to that, I wanted to ask you, if you wish, to share something about your experience of being a trans philosopher. If you're not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, you are the only trans professional philosopher in the UK. Well, actually, the situation's changed. And uh -huh more have appeared since I first made that claim. Okay, that's very good. So, so yes, actually other people are coming out of the woodwork now. That's very good. But you have been for some of that time. The it was for a while, yeah. And that must have made it difficult for you to decide how to navigate that identity in a context where you didn't have much support. It's, well, um, I, I think I do have support. I think um, I've had a lot of very good um affection, compassion, support, help, cheering on from, from colleagues and friends and family, which has all been very welcome. Um, I certainly did feel, and to some extent I still do feel, like the first person uh, in Britain to pop their head above the parapet. And of course you feel exposed and at risk when you do that. And sometimes um, you do get um, problematic feedback or problematic responses. Um, but it's an adventure and it's a surprising thing. I mean, I, I'm surprised myself that my life has turned out this way, but, but there we are. Um, it's an adventure, it's a journey, and who knows where it will take me. Yeah, and I know that you have also spoken out about recent debates about transgender rights. And recently, some public figures, as well as academics, have complained that their freedom of speech has been curtailed because they voice concern about some transgender rights. What's your view on this? And is it really freedom of speech that's at stake, or do you think it's something else? Well, I think, um, I think freedom of speech is at stake. I think it's very important that people should feel free to say what they want to say um, within limits. But there always are limits, and there are some positions which we think are just not up for debate. Um, I mean, if, if someone says, well, I'm not quite sure how we should navigate this issue, which to some extent is a new issue of trans women in sport. Um, I, I, I just don't know how to do that. Here are some proposals. Um, what do you think? And the debate starts along those lines. That seems to me totally legitimate. If someone stood up and said, well, I think we should reopen the question whether black people are less intelligent than white people, 
or I think we should reopen the question whether um, whether the Jewish people are a danger to the rest of society and we, we need to do something about them, then I think other people would be perfectly entitled to say, well, you know, if you want to debate that, then you find someone to debate that with you, if you like, but I want no part of it. I find this distasteful. I don't think you should be questioning the equality of black people, which is effectively what you're doing. I don't think you should be um, monstering Jewish people and driving them down a road, which, as we know, has in the past led to some very terrible destinations indeed. So it's not so much, very often it's not so much about people's right of free speech. It's about what platforms we're prepared to give them. And here, I think a dangerous conflation comes in. So people start saying terrible things about gay people or black people or women or trans people, and all those things are going on in our society now. And then they demand a platform for their speech. Um, and other people shun them, and I think rightly shun them because they're saying awful things. People don't want anything to do with the conversation. They they just shake their heads and walk away. And then here's the conflation. People say, oh, I'm being victimized. I'm being, non, I'm being no platformed. People won't let me speak. Well, the answer to that very often is, it usually is, people are letting you speak. They're just not prepared to let you speak here because they don't think that your kind of speech is, is something they, they want to promote. They don't want this to be, you know, the headline discussion in our conversation. We don't want that to be about whether whether gay people are a threat to minors. Um, people raise that question, and it's it's just an unpleasant question. The, the answer to it is, you know, it's, it's not like you can't answer it. The answer is, of course, no, they are not. And what on earth has got into you that you want to raise that possibility? Why, why are you foregrounding that? And in a way, the, the debates we get here connect with what we were talking about at the conference in Pardubitz, with what's thinkable and unthinkable. There's also a debate to be had about what we want to concentrate on, what we want to foreground. And the people who are foregrounding, scaremongering about gay people and scaremongering about trans people are typically, I, I have to say, not really people that I want to be in the debate with. They're people like Alex Jones. Um, they're people who are, I think, recognizably on the crank wing of things. And it's better just to, I'd, I'd say it's better to let them get on with it and, and have nothing to do with them. But as I say, they complain when you do that, that they're being cancelled, that their rights of free speech are being denied them. And beyond the point, this just becomes preposterous. When you've got people writing in the Sunday Times you know, every national paper, there's a kind of internet meme that goes around about this. And the, the I've been cancelled tour, get your T-shirts here, all dates sold out for the foreseeable future. This is ridiculous. And if people who are engaged in this sort of activity can't see how ridiculous they're being, then I don't know what to say. Yeah, there there is clearly a very ironic appeal to freedom from people who want to curtail other people's freedom, but they yes, do it's not very see the irony. Yes, and very dangerous. I mean, Alex Jones is a clear example of this kind of speech. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of the political climate within which Alex Jones and people like him seem to arise, uh, while on the one hand there seems to be uh, hopefully a greater recognition socially about transgender identities. There also seems to be a distinctive political move in Europe and globally towards a populist far right, which threatens to further intolerance and curtail liberties, such as recent escalation of violence against women perpetrated by Iran or the restriction of women's rights in the States with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. 
Are you worried that any gain made by transgender people will be lost in this climate? Oh, absolutely. And um, my worries go much further than that. I think it's it's not just it's not just trans people who are under threat. It's gay people. It's women. It's um, it's women who who work in professional roles as we do. Um, they're under threat too because um, all the rights that have been won since about 1960, I think, are now in, under threat in America, and we're looking at a, a highly dysfunctional. Um, position in the next election. It was this electoral pendulum whereby it tends to be Democrats after Republicans and Republicans after Democrats. Well, I, I think the Republican Party is now in an absolutely terrifying state. I really do. And I think if they were to get back in, in 2024, there would be a very serious threat, not just to trans people, but to all sorts of people who have popped up um, in the climate of freedom, expressing themselves in ways which would not be allowed in the kind of theocratic fascism that the Republican Party seems to favour and is already imposing in a large number of US states. I mean, it's it's very easy to Google the number of US states where abortion rights have been curtailed. Um, and it's a horrifyingly large proportion of the US. The US is in a cold civil war, and that's extremely alarming. You don't have to be trans to be alarmed about that. We should all be alarmed about it, because, of course, it affects Europe, what goes on over there. Absolutely. Do you think that as philosophers, we could contribute more to the public debate on these issues? Um, I think that uh, we should do what we can. I think we should be realistic about, I'm, I'm going to make a claim to be cancelled now. I think we should be realistic about how rigged the discussion is um, against us. So for example, in the UK, um, there is a massive debate about trans people. And there are there's a whole row of newspapers um, on the right of the political spectrum that are saying appalling things about trans people repeatedly, again and again, for years on end. And they claim to be contributing to a trans debate. Um, it's very striking to me as a trans person how little they want to hear from me about what I think about these debates, because I don't think the right things as they're concerned. Um, so those, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not going to get interviewed by the Daily Mail or the Times. Um, I'm just not. Uh, they don't want to hear from me. They want me not to exist. Am I being cancelled by them? Well, kind of. I mean, they, they don't want me in their picture of things. But that doesn't stop me speaking. It doesn't stop me making as much noise as I can in defence of trans people. And that's what I'm going to go on doing. And maybe with any luck, the tide will turn. And who knows? Um, it's a bit of a mixed metaphor, isn't it? You can't make a tide turn by pushing at a, pushing at a locked door. But um, who knows what role my efforts will have if the tide does turn? All, all you can say is you did your best. You tried to change things. And if people won't listen. Yeah. But they have the right not to listen. <laughs> well... I am joining this conversation very much, so I would like it not to end, but I'm conscious of time. So I would like to end with a final question, which is more uh, forward-looking and perhaps forward-looking with hope, um, unlike the topics that unfortunately we've discussed so far. And this is the question. Do you have a word of advice for the younger generations of philosophers who are starting their work now, either in terms of working with their sexual, political, or social identity, or in terms of how to fit into a specialized discipline? 
without losing their authenticity? I think it's tremendously difficult. And um, throughout the latter half of my career, I have spent a lot of time uh, doing what I can to support the younger generation. So I was treasurer of the Mind Association for uh, two decades from 2000 to 2020, 2021. And one thing the Mind Association is in a position to do, because it has the revenues of the journal Mind um, to distribute, um, that's what the association's for. Um, so it was always my aim as Mind Treasurer to try and help people who are starting out, early career researchers in philosophy. And I hope I did some small measure of good in that role. Um, in general, I think there's a great need for uh, resilience and hope amongst younger people. I think that um, it's tremendously difficult. My, my heart goes out to those who are trying to establish themselves in academia these days because it is awfully difficult. And the signs are, in the UK at any rate, that there's going to be a massive squeeze on public spending. And so it's going to get harder. Um, I think that I'm I'm lost in admiration at the sheer persistence and ingenuity of some of the young philosophers I know. They they take side paths that are unexpected. They refuse to be um, bowed down by the weight of opposition they face. They find different ways of doing things, like um, founding their own publishing and editing companies, or branching out into being um, independent philosophers, freelance philosophers, or whatever. I think that it's very, very important that academia should not present itself. Uh, senior academics, like I suppose I am by now, um, we should not present ourselves as homogeneous and as you know, all, all terrifyingly the same and terrifyingly um, small c conservative in the way we think of philosophy. I think it's very important to allow diversity and inclusion to happen. And I think one way forward for that is simply for us to make it clear that we're open to new approaches and different voices. And I think that's happening to some extent. I, I don't think we've completely failed in that respect. But I do think that, if, if I may single out the US again, my experience of the US is that it's much more hierarchical and much more small c conservative than the UK. Um, and I think that's really bad. I think that makes it really hard for young people. So the tenure track system in particular, I think is an abomination. I really do. So for five years, you as an early career researcher are psychologically tortured by your older colleagues. You're held to ransom for the sake of a permanent job by them. And everything you do is being watched. And if you stray off the beaten track as they regard it, um, they'll just refuse you tenure. And that will be it. I think that's an abomination. I really do. I don't think old people should have that much control over the future of young people's lives. And I think the UK system, where we appoint people, and um, in, to some extent, we're taking a risk. I mean, who knows how they'll turn out. I think we should take that risk. I think it's right to take that risk. Let people have a crack of the whip. It's it's not fair the way things are done at the moment. So I would just like to close this conversation, which has been characterized by hope, inspiration, but also worry, by reading out, if you allow me, the quote by Rainer Maria Rilke that you have at the end of your book, which is very beautiful. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. 
Professor Sophie Grace Chapel, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Sylvia.